All right, let's pray, and then we're going to continue our little break between module uh, two and three and look at reasons to consider Israel and the church as distinct. So let's pray and begin our Lord's Day together. Our Father, we stop, we pause, we even uh, look to Scripture's concept of a Sabbath rest to just stop this day and to focus our affections on truth, to focus our hearts on Christ, to focus our minds on God. I pray, Lord, that this would be a day where you feed your people. I pray that this would be a day to encourage our hearts. We thank you and praise you that we are seven days closer to heaven than we were last week. Lord, if you would be so gracious, may this be our last Sunday on this earth. We would meet next together around the throne. But should you continue to tarry, I pray that the knowledge that we gain today, which is so vital and so commanded to us to grow in the knowledge of Christ, I pray that what we gain today, Lord, would bolster our faith, would increase our trust in you, our love for you, and our obedience unto you. I pray that what we speak of this morning, both here and in every classroom in in our church building here, would be pleasing to you and helpful and edifying to your people. And that by the time we get to the end of the Lord's Day, every person here today, as we lay our heads on our pillows, would just be thankful for the Word of God, for the people of God, for the truth of God. I pray that you would start us off today, Lord, with a humble attitude of worship unto you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So last time we started this little uh, detour, and I'll probably do this particular little lecture series, uh, two-part lecture series, every couple of years, because I just, I think this is so, so key to how we understand the Bible. I did a long introduction last time, but you're used to that, and then we began looking at reasons to consider Israel and the church as distinct, and I'm going to just briefly review where we started, if this little thing works, is it going, there we go, Um, just list these, we started We're looking directly from Scripture um, to have the church in Israel be indistinct now forces a spiritualized interpretation onto a ton of Scripture. We don't want to do that. Second reason, the Bible explicitly promises that God's covenant is eternal and it's unbreakable, specifically Abrahamic and the New Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is temporary and it says that. Third reason we gave, the Apostle Paul declared in Romans 11, 1 and 2, I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. That's pretty clear. A fourth reason to consider Israel and the church as distinct. The other times in Romans 9 through 11 that Paul keeps the church in Israel distinct, and I gave a bunch of verse references up there for you. We have a fifth reason. The context of Paul saying there is no distinction between Jew and Greek in Romans 10 and 12 is not that the Israel and the church are now interchangeable, but it's that for the same Christ is Lord over all. And we want to be very clear about that. Um, if we use that faulty logic, there's also no distinction between male and female Christians that we're supposed to mix those up as well. So that, that can't be the case. We looked at the sixth reason. The New Testament explicitly says that the Old Testament promises to Israel are still the possession of Israel. They're not somehow fulfilled in Christ alone or in the church alone. The seventh reason we gave was that the Old Testament teaches the future literal permanent restoration of the nation of Israel on a massive scale. 
you have to get rid of whole passages like all of Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 30 through 33, Ezekiel 36 through 39, Amos chapter 9. You have to get rid of all of those in order to uh, get rid of a permanent restoration of Israel. He gave an eighth reason that the New Testament reiterates the future salvation and restoration of Israel. And I gave a bunch of verse references, read a couple of them to you. The ninth reason, the apostles believed in the restored national Israel and Jesus didn't correct this. He just simply didn't tell them when it's happening. When they had come together, Acts 1, 6, and 7, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. What's the implication? He just, he just said, I'm not going to tell you when it happens. He didn't say it's not going to happen. He just said, I'm not going to tell you when And then the tenth reason we gave is that the New Testament never uses the term Israel for those who are not ethnic Jews. There's no nomenclature, there's no label um, for a new Israel. There's no label for that. The title Israel, 73 times in the New Testament, always refers to ethnic Jews. So we're still in the section of looking at um, what the Bible says, and we'll go do a few more reasons on what the Bible says, and then I want to give you some Uh, Other considerations as well, more in the area of philosophical theology, logical theology that that, uh, is secondary to Scripture, but still useful to help our thinking. So we'll do an 11th reason. The New Testament still consistently refers to national Israel as Israel, even after Pentecost. Now, you might expect in all the Gospels for Jesus and the, uh, the disciples to refer to national Israel as Israel, But if the church has replaced Israel after Pentecost, that term should go away, wouldn't you think? You would think that Paul would never write about a distinction between Israel and the church. And so the New Testament, that time marker of Pentecost, the beginning of the church church age, uh, would be an important uh, time for that change to take place. I would think that that's important enough that the Apostle Peter would even in his very first sermon at Pentecost would have mentioned something that you are the new Israel. That's what he would have said, I believe, if that was the case. Here's a twelfth reason. The book of Acts maintains a clear distinction, referring to Israel 20 times, and ecclesia, the church, the gathering, the assembly, 19 times, but the two are never mixed. And I know I've already mentioned that that's the case in the whole New Testament, but the book of Acts is pretty important because we derive a lot of our understanding of what the church of Jesus Christ is from the book of Acts. It's sometimes been said that Acts is a history book, not a theology book. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Every book of the Bible is a theology book. We look to the book of Acts not for everything to be normative for today. In other words, we're not speaking in tongues. I've never seen a flame of fire hanging out over any of your heads and things like that. But as far as defining the purpose, the nature of the church, absolutely. And so you would think that if that change has taken place, that Acts would reflect that, and it doesn't. It reflects actually a clear distinction. 20 to 19, Israel to the ecclesia. The 13th reason, commonly used proof text for the replacement or fulfillment position, and I gave a list of them up there. Uh, commonly used proof text, Galatians 3, 7, verse 29, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. I gave you some others, and you can study those on your own if you like, but all of them have very reasonable, logical, and understandable explanations within a framework of a distinct church in Israel. 
In other words, there's not, a, there's not even one killer verse that kind of makes everything else uh, uh, seem powerless. Every one of them have reasonable explanations. So 14th reason. And I'm sorry for the list, but, the, but sometimes lists tell you that something is really true because there's so many reasons. So um, you're doing really well. We only have uh, 18 more. You're okay. Matthew 19.28. This is one of my favorite reasons. It explicitly says that the apostles in the future kingdom of Christ will rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. That's pretty specific. And that's a hard one to make go away because now you have to say, well, if the church is the new Israel, what tribe do I belong to? Well, the answer you're going to get most often is, well, that's just symbolic. You remember the illustration I gave last time of, of uh, arm wrestling that you get close to being defeated and so you just go eh, like that because you don't have a real answer. You don't have real strength. How do you explain 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 new rulers? That is the time when Jesus Christ fired the old rule of Israel and installed the new one. Now, they're not doing it yet, but they will. So that one is, uh, that's very, very compelling. It's the 15th reason. The apostles preached the restoration of Israel to Israel's leadership. In Acts 3, 19 through 21, this is very important. This is during the now inaugurated church age, and they're making a distinction between the age of the church and the age of Israel's restoration. Did you catch that? The apostles make a distinction between the church age and the time of Israel's restoration. They're different. They're not the same thing. Acts 3, 19 through 21. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. This promises a future restoration associated with the second coming of Christ, not that the restoration is now taking place in the church. They're two distinct events. It's the 16th reason. Romans 9 verse 6 indicates that believing Jews are the true Israel. Quote, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You remember we also talked about the, the two circles, the big circle. Every person ever descended from Abraham, the smaller circle, every person ever descended from Abraham who has trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. That will be the new Israel. Seventeenth reason, Paul says that God is faithful to Israel because of his specific promises to the patriarchs. Romans eleven twenty eight. as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, this is speaking of Jews, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. What does that mean? That right now, as a people, the Jewish people on earth, generally speaking, are not friendly toward Christians or toward Christianity. I, I don't mean in a personal sense. I mean in a sense of, of theologically. They are enemies for your sake. They don't believe the gospel. We do. But Paul says, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. That's an important point. That says that election is always permanent. That the people of Israel, though they have been under the discipline of God, depending on how you count, for some 2,700 years, that even now they're still called the beloved of God because their time is coming. 
18th reason. The quotation of Amos 9, 11 through 15 in Acts 15, 13 through 18 shows that Gentiles becoming the people of God is consistent with prophetic predictions. Well, what do I mean by this? It's not intended as a comprehensive theology of all the continuities and discontinuities between Israel and the church, but it does show that in the Old Testament, there is a shadow of the fact that there will be a Gentile people of God that is distinct from the Jewish people of God. Yes, all under the cross in the same way that males are distinct from females, yet all under the cross. Same idea. And by the way, uh, James in Acts 15, the Apostle James, he never says that Amos 9 is fulfilled. He just said that the prophets agree that there will be Gentiles called by the name of the Lord. So uh, it's important whenever you see the New Testament quoting key future kingdom passages from the Old Testament to look at the context of that. And in this particular case, as in all of them, it shows one people of God under the cross. Most of them are Gentiles. Some of them are Jews in a new nation. The 19th reason, Israelite language is used in the New Testament. Now, a lot of, a lot of uh, our covenant theology brothers will say, well, see, that shows that Israel and the church are the same. No, all it does is it bears witness to the continuities. Remember, we talked about that, that there's way more continuities between Israel and the church than there are discontinuities. So it just bears witness to that. Now, for example, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, Romans 9, 24 through 26, speaking of the church, uses very Jewish language that you are a kingdom of priests and so forth. But that doesn't negate the distinction. Uh, all of the similarities I have with my wife, there are way more continuities than there are discontinuities, but the discontinuities are still there. First Peter especially, I think, would have been a marvelous opportunity to define the church as a new Israel because Peter was writing to whom? To dispersed Jews. What a great opportunity he would have had to say, you're the new Israel. But he doesn't do that. He still maintains a distinction between Israel and the church. Here's a 20th reason. We're still in the, the, the realm of what the Bible directly says. Isaiah 19, 24 and 25 predicts that someday God will call Egypt, quote, my people, referring to saved Egyptians. But Egypt is also mentioned alongside Israel as a distinct entity, not an inculcated entity. Egypt is my people, but they are not Israel. And that's a great passage. It also speaks of the Assyrians being my people. And there's this word picture of three brothers, uh, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and the Israelites uh, living together all as God's people, yet God is maintaining that distinction. So 21st reason. New Testament prophecy is abounding with predictions of a future Israel. Revelation 7, 4 through 8, all the tribes of Israel are mentioned. Matthew 24, 15 and following is clearly about a future Israel. And in fact, Jesus tells future Israelites what to do during the tribulation period. Paul refers to the future temple in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. So the New Testament has prophecies of a coming future Israel. It didn't end at Pentecost. Jesus said, Reason number 22, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. John 10, 16, who is he speaking of? He's speaking of the Gentile elect. 
he made a distinction between saved Jews and saved Gentiles. And maybe this is a good way to put this. This is a distinction of, of uh, variety, not a distinction of value. And that's a faulty argument that sometimes gets thrown at, at, at those of us who believe in the distinction between the church and Israel. Oh, well, do you think that God has one people that he loves more than another? The Bible never says that. It's a distinction of variety, not value. That would be the same as saying God loves men more than women. Of course not. Here's another reason from Scripture. Another one, this is one of my favorites because it is very compelling. New Jerusalem will have gates named after the 12 tribes of Israel. Revelation 21.12. There's clearly a national uh, Israel flavor to this. Not to mention, Revelation 21.24 says that the nations of the earth will come into New Jerusalem. There's only one logical choice for the, nation of New, or for the city of New Jerusalem to be in. That would be Israel. And you notice in that passage, there's a distinction between the nations and Israel as well. Now, a little sidetrack here. Um, generally speaking, in the reading I've done, and I'm not going to claim to represent every covenant theologian equally with one blanket statement, but generally speaking, New Jerusalem uh, in the book of Revelation is viewed as the church. And why is this? Well, Revelation 21 says that I saw New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride. And they say, see, that's the bride of Christ. It doesn't say coming out of heaven, comma, the bride. It says coming out of heaven like a bride, like a bride prepared. Um, just because you use that word picture once doesn't mean that that always must be the church. I dare say there are other illustrations in the Bible of something being like uh, a bride, and that's not, doesn't mean it has to be the church. Just because an illustration is used once one way doesn't mean it's the same across the board. That's a, that's a faulty hermeneutic. And so they, ha they have to say New Jerusalem is the church uh, because that does present a real problem. If New Jerusalem is a real city that's actually going to come down out of heaven, what nation are we going to land it in? When that thing comes down, it's not, it's not going to uh, any other nation except Israel. And then, you, and by the way, if you say New Jerusalem is the church, then you have to get into a whole bunch of guesswork on the metaphors. Okay, well, what does it mean that they're named after the 12 tribes of Israel? The gates are named after the 12 tribes. Well, see, that just proves that the church is the new Israel and so forth. No, it doesn't. What's the most logical reading of Scripture? Give the Bible to a seventh grader and have them read about New Jerusalem with gates named after the tribes of Israel. What, what conclusion is the seventh grader going to come to? Looks like a city to me. Look, there's measurements. We know how wide, how tall, how long. We know what it's made of, and we know what the gates are called. That's what, that's what we would come to. Not that we measure all of theology by what a seventh grader would, uh, would read, but always be careful that if you have to learn something from a theologian and that's the only way you can gain truth, they're probably wrong. We should be able to read the Bible and understand it at face value. Here's a 24th reason, still in the realm of just what Scripture says. The Davidic covenant demands a national Israel, which is different from the church. 2 Samuel 7 is very clear about national promises that you will always have a descendant. David will always have a descendant seated on the throne of Israel. Now, our covenant theologian brothers might say that, well, that's Christ who is the head of the church. In the church, we don't use throne terminology. Even Christ as the head of the church, he is never once said to be the king of the church. 
He is the chief shepherd. He is the head of the church. He's never called, to my knowledge, the king of the church. Now, he is our king, right? But that's because he's the king of the whole world. He is the head of the church. He's the chief shepherd. So you begin to mix those metaphors in a way that the Bible doesn't. You get on some shaky ground. The Davidic covenant, well, let's put it this way. King David, by some miracle and, uh, and or time machine, walks in this door. And we interview him. We say, why would you want to hear from Steve Swartz? This is King David's time. And uh, I get to interview him. And I get the microphone. And I say, King David, <clears throat> when you received your promise of uh, 2 Samuel 7, uh, that someday a descendant of yours would be on the throne of Israel for all time, what do you think that meant? And we put the microphone in his face. What's he going to say? That's a dumb question. God told me that somebody who comes from my body will sit on the throne of my nation forever. Why are you asking me that question? Doesn't that make sense? What else would he say? Okay, King David can leave now. Now we're going to part two. Some other considerations. If those first 24 didn't convince you, I don't know what to tell you, you know, uh, as we're being raptured and uh, we see uh, the new Jerusalem in heaven go, oh, (laughs) well, there it is. Um, That's okay. But let me give you some other considerations. And again, I want to be very clear uh, this, I wouldn't put these in the category of as authoritative, but I think uh, they're worth considering. Here's the 25th reason. If God has changed the definitions of land and nation to mean provision and the church, then he has deceived Abraham. And it would be a breach of covenant, and therefore we could not trust God to keep his promises to us in the church age. Is the land of Israel now spiritualized? Dr. Gary Burge says this, quote, Jesus spiritualizes the land in John 15. Nowhere in John 15 do we see Jesus doing that. That's just his assessment. God told Abram in Genesis 13, 17, Arise, walk the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Genesis 15, 18, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land to the from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. There's debate as to whether the river of Egypt is the Nile or another smaller tributary. doesn't make any difference. He was giving a geographical promise. How else would you take that? Again, through some miracle of time and space, Abraham walks in the door and we put the microphone in his face. Abraham, when God promised you all of this land that you walked over, must have taken quite some time, and he made you walk all the way to the river of Egypt and all the way to the Euphrates, or at least talk about it, what did you mean, what did God mean by that? Was there some hidden meaning? We put the microphone in his face, and again, he says, why are you asking me that question? You've seen that river that way, you've seen this river that way, everything in between belongs to me, belongs to my people. That would be an obvious conclusion for him. If we said to Abraham, but Abraham, don't you understand that the land really just means provision and that what you believe were going to be your people are just now all the Gentiles? What do you think of that? He would say, that makes God a liar. So I think that's a pretty compelling argument to me. Reason number 26 The church as replacing or being the fulfillment of Israel has been strongly connected with Christian anti-Semitism in history. I want to give you a little history lesson here briefly. Now, a lot of the covenant theologians um, who are also supersessionists, meaning they believe the church has replaced Israel, they adamantly deny this. 
Um, but the fact is, a scholar by the name of Barry Horner, in his book, Future Israel, What Christian Anti-Judaism uh, Must Be Challenged, I'm sorry, Future Israel, speaking of anti Christian anti-Judaism being challenged, he makes an absolute airtight case for the historical nature of the association between replacement theology and anti-Semitic leanings. This is not me making this up. This is not me just saying, well, this is what I think. And he documents, because of a belief in no literal eschatological future for Israel, Horner documents the shocking anti-Semitic statements made famously by Augustine, who is a major contributor to covenant theology thought. He quotes medieval church historian Jeremy Cohen as writing that the medieval church had an anti-Semitic policy largely because of Augustine's influence. I hate to say this, but our, our brother in the Lord, John Calvin, wasn't much better. Because he was passive toward the Jews, because he declared the church to be the new Israel, Jews were expelled from all the cities who claimed to follow Calvin. In other words, Calvin's view of Israel literally led to the abuse and mistreatment of Jews. That's not made up, that's history. Here's the 27th reason. Christian Jewish organizations who vehemently cling to the promises of a restored Israel include the Friends of Israel, International Christian Embassy, uh, Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, International Christian Embassy, Jerusalem, Jews for Jesus, Chosen People Ministry, uh, many others. And the one thing that they all have in common, and I spent a lot of time researching and looking at these particular organizations, the one thing they all have in common is they use the same hermeneutic. That for them, it's a Bible study method of taking the scriptures at face value and not spiritualizing the Old Testament uh, regarding uh, Israel. And you, you talk to them. I've talked to a couple of saved Jews and I have asked this question, what do you think of the church as having replaced Israel? That is extremely offensive to Jewish Christians because they take scripture at face value and they, in their minds, uh, their people have been waiting 3,500 years for this thing to finally come around to where it's supposed to be. And so... Um, Again, that's not a proof, but all of those organizations uh, have a good hermeneutic and they believe as we do. Here is a, a 28th reason. The massive inconsistency of views among the church is Israel proponents. Here's some of the, some of the inconsistencies. These views include what some call punitive supersessionism. That God is punishing Israel for her rejection of Christ. Others call it economic supersessionism. That it was God's plan for Israel's role as God's people to expire with the coming of Christ and be replaced by the church. Or you have structural supersessionism. That the Old Testament is fairly silent on the formation of our convictions about God's consummating work. And within those three major camps, there's a bunch of other variations. The strong supersessionists uh, believe Israel has zero future. Moderates see a plan for salvation of Jews as part of a group or as a group, but not their national land promises restoration. Uh, they're only assured of being part of the church. In other words, the, the moderates would say, well, yeah, God is going to restore Israel, but they're just part of the church. There's no land promises involved. So it's, it's incredibly inconsistent, and it's not generally based in hermeneutics. It's based in which theologian do you follow? Here's the 29th reason. This is the only church I would ever be in that I think uh, can handle this. So thank you for that. Uh, where are we at there? 29. Twice in history, God has regathered a completely scattered Israel. 
Now, we wouldn't take those gatherings, and that was right after the exile, and then in 1948, we wouldn't take those gatherings as ultimately fulfilling Bible prophecy. And I have to admit, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s uh, in particular, uh, we dispensationalists went nuts over the regathering of Israel, like Christ is going to return any moment, and, and I understand that. But why did we go nuts? Why did they go crazy over this? Because have you ever heard of a nation that hasn't been a nation for thousands of years being regathered on the same piece of property they used to own? That's crazy miraculous. And it's happened twice. What does that say? Third time is reasonable to assume, isn't it? Number 30, the church is a partaker currently of the spiritual blessing of the new covenant. We are not a taker of the new covenant. We are a partaker in the new covenant. We're not partaking in the physical blessings of the new covenant. That will happen in the next age and the church will benefit. The New Testament doesn't speak a lot about um, what's going to happen in how the church relates to the land promises of Israel. But can I say this? New heavens, new earth, I think there'll be plenty of space for everyone. I don't think you're going to be crying in your soup because you didn't get the same deal that your Jewish brothers did. According to Scripture, we will revel in the fact that they are God's chosen nation. I mean, think about it today. What's the ultimate trip around the world that Christians want to take? To where? Israel. We already feel that way. We don't go, well, that's not right. You know, we should go to France. Uh, No, we say we want to go where Jesus walked. We want to go where the apostle, we want to go where everything started. And I think that'll just be uh, elevated all the more. Reason number 31. One must reinterpret entirely pretty much the whole book of Isaiah to get rid of a future national Israel, which is distinct from the church of this age. That's, that one's kind of personal to me. I took 75 messages to preach through Isaiah, which in retrospect, I think was too fast. It's a, it's a beautiful, wonderful book. And by the time I got to the end of Isaiah, studying that book for two years straight, I closed my Bible and I, I just said, anybody who believes the church replaces Israel has not studied Isaiah. You, you can't get away from it. You almost have to rip it out of your Bible to get away from that. Here's reason number 32. We have a faulty argument from silence. Here's the argument from silence. The New Testament doesn't mention the land promises. Well, they take that to mean the land promises are now only a symbol. Well, let me ask you something. If you have a signed contract promising you something, you don't need another one in case the, the old one suddenly has a brand new meaning. You, those of you who have signed, on, signed your life away to buy a house, you know that, that awful feeling. You do the calculations. How old am I going to be when I pay this off? You sign on the dotted line. Your mortgage company doesn't call you in 10 years and say, just to let you know, we've just reinterpreted that old contract to mean you don't actually own your house anymore. You need to sign a brand new one. You don't have to do that. You can stick with the same contract. Why does the New Testament not mention the land promises? It doesn't need to. They're all over the Old Testament. And remember, we've kind of joked about this. That blank page between Malachi and Matthew ought to just come out of your Bible. Because the story simply continues. And so it's a false dichotomy. Let me give you an illustration. In 1651, Charles II of England had been defeated in the English Civil War and he was on, 
on the run for his life. Well, the life of Charles II was saved by the Pendral family who hid him for many days while soldiers searched the area that he was hiding. Charles eventually escaped and he never forgot the kindness of the Pendral family. And in Charles II's will, he left a fortune which was to provide a pension for the Pendral family. To this day, descendants of the Pendral family still receive this pension because of a contract, a will, a covenant that's 400 years old now. And so... Do contracts expire just because you don't think they mean the same thing anymore? They don't. Same with the land promises. So there's 32 reasons, 24 of them from Scripture, a few others from, uh, just from, from logic. Um, let me just talk for just a second about what, what is this, the faulty argument from silence. Um, <clears throat> there's a saying that we were taught in seminary that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Uh, in other words, when somebody says, well, there were no camels in Bible times um, because we've never found skeletons of camels that match Bible times uh, uh, dating, which has actually been a pretty common view. What does that say? That because we haven't dug up a camel skeleton somewhere that uh, now... Uh, that means there were no camels in Bible times. Therefore, the Bible is wrong all the time that calls, p- talks about camels. Um, incidentally, they have dug up camels now that date to Bible times. But just because you didn't dig something up doesn't mean it doesn't exist. The, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. In the same way, um, just because the New Testament doesn't have land promises reiterated in them doesn't mean that that somehow erases the Old Testament promises. It's, it's uh, and I actually, I think we can make a case for land promises in the New Testament. That's a, a whole other topic. So, just to kind of wrap this up, where does the problem lie? Why is this important? Who cares whether Israel is the church or the church is Israel? Isn't it easier just to say, well, the Bible says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Isn't that easier? It's important because at the core of this issue is the question, How do I approach the Bible? How do I approach it? Proponents of Israel as fulfilled in the church or inculcated by the church or Christ as the the only fulfillment of Israel or the total fulfillment of Israel, they've reached this conclusion, listen carefully, not because the Bible has led them to that conclusion, but they've reached that conclusion because of a theological position, a presupposition that they bring to Scripture already. And they would deny that adamantly, but that can be, that's the only case. That's the only possibility. Let me show you an example. Douglas Van Dorn writes of covenant theology, quote, Covenant theology is a system of biblical interpretation which organizes the Bible around covenants. We understand that. He goes on to say, quote, The idea is never to have the system drive the Bible, but the the Bible to drive the system. We would agree with that completely. But he also assumes it's impossible to approach the Bible without a theological system in the first place. He says, quote, It is naive to think that anyone approaches the Scripture apart from some preconceived network of ideas. Really, I can think of lots of people. How about somebody who's never read the Bible before or been exposed to theology? Give them a Bible. They can, they can read it without a preconceived notion. But do you understand? He says you should never uh, have the Bible drive your, you should never have the system drive the Bible. But then he says it's impossible to not have a system drive the Bible. 
That's impossible. And we totally understand any reasonable person says, yes, I know I'm coming at Scripture with some preconceived notions, but that's why we have hermeneutics. That's why we have Bible study methods to let the Bible speak for itself, not for us to bring our view to the Bible. And we test our views against the Bible. We change our views according to what the Bible says. So we're not to approach Scripture with a theological system. That's why I'm not big on theological uh, uh, labels. I mean, we've used the label dispensationalist. But well, okay, which kind? You know, the kind from 150 years ago or the kind that, from today? And if somebody says, are you a dispensationalist? Um, I think Dr. MacArthur got out of this better than anybody um, he calls himself a leaky dispensationalist, meaning that there's some holes in old school dispensationalism, particularly when it comes to uh, soteriology, that old school dispensationalism said Old Testament saints were saved by the law, New Testament saints saved by grace. No, we wouldn't agree with that. So I'm uncomfortable having a label slapped on me. Just I'll show you a giant list of everything that I believe the Bible teaches and you can call it whatever you want. But we're not to approach Scripture with a theological system. We're not to approach Scripture with history being a hermeneutic. Well, so-and-so believed this. Okay, well, what does that prove? It just proves that so-and-so believed that. Um, You can have a whole bunch of people who are all very, very genuine and genuinely wrong, and that's okay. Um, Some of those same people also would would fight for uh, infant baptism and, um, and other things that we would not hold to today. So there's a big difference between approaching Scripture with a theological system and approaching Scripture with a hermeneutic, with a Bible study method by which we derive theological conclusions. This is why, by the way, when you're studying issues like this, it's important to examine other views and to assess their arguments because that helps you understand, okay, this view is different from mine. What are the arguments for it? Sometimes it might change your mind because they use a better hermeneutic than you do. And that's okay. That's that's wonderful. The hermeneutic forces you to think. Listen carefully. The hermeneutic that you use forces us to think and find answers in scriptures. A theological system has already done the thinking for you. And you simply find confirmations in scripture of what you already believe. So this is important. I know this sounds like we're just nitpicking, but really um, the Bible is the very word of God. It is the mind of Christ. Isn't Isn't it imperative that we take the time to actually assess what it says and not just go by what everyone else says that it says. I would urge you even here at Grace Bible Church to be good Bereans. Uh, One thing that I've heard only once or twice in my ministry here and I just overheard it is, well, it must be right because Pastor Steve preached it. That, That tears my heart out. No, be good Bereans from Acts 17. Test Test anything you hear against the scriptures, but uh, do it do it well. Put in the same amount of time, but that's what God wants. He wants us to test. So we kind of got through that with a five or ten minutes to spare. So let's um, let's take a few questions. Church in Israel. I don't know if I know anything else, but uh, David, yeah. Oh, that's a, so that would be, I, I would take that, and again, this is off the top of my head, so we're recording this, aren't we? We're, we record everything. Um, that's a case of a metaphor being used in different ways to, to be useful. 
um, Romans 8 tells us that all saved people are adopted into the kingdom, that we are the adopted children of God. But then Romans 9 speaks of the Gentiles being grafted in or adopted into uh, into God's blessings of Israel. Again, that is not that we're inculcated into Israel. Actually, if you're going to say anything, I think you could make a better case that the church gets swallowed by Israel, not Israel gets swallowed by the church. But it doesn't mean that we're two distinct peoples. It means that, that 3,500 years ago, or 4,000 years ago, rather, God made a promise to the first Jew, if we want to call him that, Abraham. And we, here in Bakersfield, California, get to ride the coattails of that promise. That's, that's being adopted. So we're adopted, all Jews and Gentiles who love Christ, we're adopted into the kingdom, but then Gentiles, we're adopted into all the blessings of Israel as well. Not to erase the distinction, but to just receive the blessing. So does that help a little bit? Okay. What else? And maybe you're sick of this topic, I don't know. Well, don't say that, though. That would discourage me. What else? about this topic in particular. Yes, oh. So the, the question is uh, concerning a king to, um, to be on the throne of David. What about that, what about that gap? That there is a gap. Um, and that then we could come to the conclusion that, uh, well, now, the, now Christ is reigning as king over the church, which is now Israel and that sort of thing. Uh, I have no problem with, with uh, gaps in prophecy because they're actually all over the old testament i'll give you two examples um it's funny i was just studying this this week and i said i hope somebody asks about gaps in prophecy so that was very exciting to me thank you nate um first of all the promise is not to david from this moment forward every single day of all of history there will always be somebody on the throne the promise is that there will be somebody on the throne for all eternity okay so there's a there, there's some ambiguity there I think we can go with. Uh, and I'm just going to make sure that I didn't just misquote God. Uh, I don't want to do that on a Sunday especially. So, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon? Yes. All Solomon only? No. Solomon's kingdom wasn't established forever. But the promise is, I will raise up your offspring after you when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. In other words, sometime after you die, I will raise up a king who will be forever. That's the timing. Is David dead? Yes. So anytime now is totally fine. Let me give you two other examples of gaps in prophecy. And this is really just all over scripture. Um, In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue at Nazareth in his hometown. 
and as was the custom, uh, you could request to read the scriptures, and he, he took the scroll of Isaiah, and by the way, no chapter or verse divisions, but he knew right where in the scroll to go, which is pretty phenomenal, and he read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stopped. And he said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I am the Messiah. He stopped literally mid-sentence. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he stopped, rolled up the scroll, sat down. What does it say after that? And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them beautiful headdress. And now we talk about uh, the restoration of Israel right after the vengeance of God on the earth. He stopped right where the gap is in Isaiah 61, literally mid-sentence, mid-verse. That guy knew his prophecy. Let me give you another example. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, anybody who's read the New Testament once or even showed up to church at Christmas time on occasion or, or uh, Easter rather, they know that one. Well, Jesus fulfilled that. What's it say right after that? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, that's Israel, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He, he, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, somewhere between verse 9 and verse 10, there's a little white space there that we're in at the moment. So, I have no problem with gaps in prophecy in the Old Testament because that is a clear pattern in the Old Testament. That's why the Apostle Paul in in Colossians 1, he said that he was commissioned by God to preach the mystery. And what is the mystery? Christ in you. That mystery is almost invisible in the Old Testament. You have those gaps that now we understand. So, I have no problem with a gap there. That was too long of an answer. Sorry, Nate. I just read that this week. I thought, how exciting. Somebody asked a question. What else? What other question? I won't know anything else as good as that one. So lower your expectations. Anything else? David. Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. The question is, uh, if we're going to take all the promises to, to uh, future Israel or to Abraham, literally, sand of the sea, stars of the sky, is it literally countless? Um, in the Bible, you go both ways. You have uh, sometimes the idea of something being innumerable is, is presented. That th- there's more than you can count. With today's technology, you probably could count it. 
And then the other, other hand, sometimes you have specific numbers that are meant to, uh, to symbolize something that is innumerable. Myriads upon myriads and thousands and thousands of angels. Uh, that, that isn't basically, you can figure that number out. Uh, I forgot what it, how many zeros goes after that. It's 10,000 times 10,000. So it's 10,000 times 10,000 or 10,000 to the fourth power plus a thousands times thousands, a thousand to the fourth power, whatever that is. There's some of you math whizzes in here who can figure that out. What's the Bible saying there? It, they're, they're countless. So in this particular case, sand of the sea, stars of the sky, you can actually count the stars of the sky. Um, uh, they didn't really... You know, nobody in Abraham's day was figuring out how to count to a thousand. They didn't care about that. Um, so which one is it? I, I would say that the earth won't be an infinite size, and so ultimately we'll be able to count the people. But, you know, I mean, some of you are, some of you uh, have some grandchildren. Uh, some of you have lots and lots of grandchildren. And how does it feel to you? It feels like there's more than I can count, right? Especially when they're all around your feet. So is it, is it literally an uncountable number? I wouldn't take it that way. I would take it as, okay, um, there's 8 billion people on our planet right now. I have reason to believe that I can make the case for this, that the new heaven and new earth will be significantly larger than this one because um, if you look at the dimensions of New Jerusalem, you put it on planet earth today and physics says that the earth would turn over on its axis, that it couldn't handle it. Um, it's so huge. So I have reason to believe that the earth could easily handle, I don't know, 50 billion people, 100 billion people. Uh, who knows how many? So once you get up to, say, a billion, I think that qualifies as sand of the sea, seashore. So um, I would take it as uh, th- it is a finite number because there's not, there's not endless numbers of people in the kingdom. It's a finite number, though, that's so huge that Abraham will look across the, the gathering of his people and go, all of them came from me and Sarah. That's phenomenal. So there you go. That's, that, that's my little thought on that. Any other questions? We've got time for one or two more. Yes. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the timeline for uh, construction of covenant theology if you ask a covenant theologian they would say covenant theology goes all the way back to the Bible so there would be a, a disparaging uh, a, a difference in, in that view but um, really the first theologian to really put forward hard the idea that the church is the new Israel and so forth was Augustine in the, in the 4th century um, so I, yeah, and that goes back, but it's important that we don't base theology on who has a theologian that's older than yours. You know, that's, that's not the case. There were heretics in Paul's day. Just because they're the same age as Paul doesn't mean we believe them. Uh, I'm, let me be clear. I'm not saying covenant theology is, is heresy. It's not. It's just a different way of viewing scripture that does not take us out of the realm of, of salvation. Um, and I have to say this, and I, I want to be really clear about this. I, if, for those of you who are... Um, doing Bible Training Institute for credit to actually get your certificate. Uh, you had to read an article uh, by Les Lofquist on covenant theology, and he makes a really, really good point. Um, covenant theology churches don't go down the stupid roads of 
seeker-friendly churches of trying to water down the gospel to please people. If anything, they have been through all the decades and decades of idiocy that's happened in the church of Jesus Christ. They have been just stable across the board. Not very well known because, they're, because you don't have covenant theology megachurches generally. Why? Because they're preaching the real gospel. When you preach the real gospel, you don't usually turn into a megachurch. Um, so they have been stable and steady where I, I have to confess, I've seen Bible churches, uh, I've said this before, the term Bible church doesn't even mean anything anymore. We have churches in this town, Bible church, that I would consider completely so far off the rails that they're not even a real church anymore. So I, I'll tell you what, uh, hats off to our covenant theology brothers because they have stayed true to the gospel no matter what. Um, because for them, the gospel is, is the top priority. And I understand that. We would not say that. We would not say soteriology is our top priority. We would say doxology, the glory of God is our top priority. And soteriology falls under that. That's a very different, small difference in semantics. But, um, so I want to be very clear. Yes, I am highlighting some theological differences. But when it comes to the cross, they are gripped by the cross in ways that we should learn from. And, and absolutely you know, love them for that. So this is what I consider an in-house friendly discussion. But it does, uh, it, does, uh, it does impact how you read your Bible. So I think that's important. So as far as when covenant theology started, I think their view and mine would differ greatly on that. All right, why don't we pray and we, you have a little time before um, we come together for more formal time of worship. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And I shudder to think, that despite our best efforts, all the ways that we have missed the mark we do our very best and we attempt to study the Bible the way the men in the Bible studied the Bible. And so, Lord, that's our hope. That's our goal. We thank you for your grace and mercy when we miss the mark. We, we ask you for your help. We ask you for your grace. And for those things that are the most important, might we be the most accurate? Thank you for those who are here today, Lord. I pray that they would rejoice that you have a future for all of your people. And that when we're gathered together, around the throne of God, first in heaven, then in the millennial kingdom of Christ, and finally in the new Jerusalem, looking at creation as it was meant to be. I pray, Lord, that that joy of even that anticipation would overwhelm us in these coming days and weeks. Our world is growing darker very quickly, and so let us cling to the hope of the future. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for being good listeners. I really appreciate that.